We're returning this morning to the Gospel of John, where it's been our endeavor to gain more and more of an appreciation of who Jesus is as we have a a goal here at our church to know him in a relationship, to value him above everyone and everything else, as well as to make him known to others. I'm not sure there's a better book for that in all of the Bible than the Gospel of John. So what we've been doing is just working through this uh, verse by verse. And we find ourselves today in John chapter 6, probably covering some very familiar territory for most of the people in this room. We're going to be covering the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 as well as Jesus walking on water. Um, These are two stories that every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cover. Now, I think the significance of Jesus feeding the 5,000 will be unpacked more thoroughly next week when we look at the last uh, two-thirds or last three-quarters of this chapter. But today, we're just going to cover this, these two little stories. So would you join me and let's pray together. Uh, yes, Lord, this is our desire. Uh, as, a, as one would walk into art gallery and just be captivated by the beauty of a, a portrait, it's our desire to be in awe of who Jesus is. And we pray that you would use your word today to help shine the light of how magnificent he is, how much better he is than anything that our hands and minds could produce, uh, that we would forsake all to pursue him and know him, and that it is there where we would ultimately find our fulfillment and happiness. And then we would pray that you would use this also to help us to think about life and the challenges, the tests that we are facing currently right now, and see how Jesus can work good through them. And we pray that you would just help us to understand what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. I think what we typically do is read this passage, and then I back up and we work through it verse by verse. But what I want to do this morning is just something a little different. Let's just read it phrase by phrase together, and then I'll pause on occasion. So we're going to look here at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 where it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The words after this connect us back to John chapter 5. In fact, if we were to look at John chapter 5, verse 1, we would see that there was a feast of the Jews. And so this helps us with our timetable a little bit, because in just a few verses, in John 6, verse 4, we're going to see that there is a Passover. The feast before the Passover was the Feast of the Tabernacle, which would place this around six months after the events of John chapter 5. We can read from Matthew, Mark, Luke that what had taken place here was that Jesus had led his disciples on a preaching tour where they were going out and proclaiming how people could have their sins forgiven and be made right with God, that Jesus indeed is the promised one, the one that can save people from their sins. This preaching tour would have been accompanied by signs. Now we are told then in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, that when they came back, Jesus said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
So we see here from the context that Jesus was not only concerned about the spiritual well-being of these 12 disciples, but also their physical well-being. They have been grinding now for several months, and he says what we really need to do is get away and rest up a little bit before we launch out again in the ministry. But this desolate place evidently was not all that desolate. Because it says here in John chapter 6, verse 2, And a large crowd was following him. So people had found out that Jesus was in the area. Now what was it that drove these people to follow Jesus? The second half of verse 2 discloses that. It says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Not everyone who is pursuing Jesus is pursuing Jesus with the right motives. There are many that are coming to Jesus so that he can meet their quote-unquote need, that he will help them out of a perceived jam. And this is, in large part, the reason for this crowd that was swarming to Jesus and his disciples. Verse 3 tells us, and they went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And we see a, a great picture of Jesus here, that he is not only about his father's business, but he truly has a heart for the men that are around him. And so he just wants to gather these 12 men and, and hang out with them and experience what the Bible calls fellowship, an intimate relationship with them. Verse 4 tells us, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Verse 5, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? Another location in the telling of this story in Mark 6, verses the 30, uh, rather 34, it says that Jesus had compassion on the people. And as he looked up at this sea of people, what we'll find out in verse 10, that there were 5,000 men, could have been as much as fifteen to 20,000 people there, that he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. We see that he has a heart, that every person is made in the image of God. Every person has a soul in which they'll either go to heaven or hell, and Jesus is concerned for them. He's not only concerned about their spiritual well-being, but once again about their physical well-being. And now the concern has arose, how is it that all these people are going to be fed? Well, there's a great little verse there in Mark 6, verse 35 and 36, because Jesus was not the only one to diagnose a perceived problem. The disciples did as well. And they said to Jesus, Hey, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away, so that they can go into the villages and find food for themselves. We see a problem here, Jesus. Let's just get rid of the problem. Why don't you send them away? And it certainly is ironic, isn't it, that the students are telling the teacher what to do. And that's never a good idea. And in response to that, Matthew 14, verse 16, Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something 
to eat. And so Jesus is putting the weight of this problem on the shoulders of the disciples. Now back to the question that is posed here in verse 5 of chapter 6, where he says to Philip, where, where are we going to buy bread so that these men may eat? Now sometimes when we cover a passage in the New Testament, we're, we're aware that there has been a lot of time that has passed and there's been a lot of enhancements or improvements that have been made in technology that allows more efficiency. But as I've been pondering this question, I'm not sure that we have a, any answer for it today. If you are out in a field and there's 15 to 20,000 people, that's still a good question. Where are we going to find restaurants and services to feed all these people? I, I don't know. In Philip's response, he doesn't even tackle the where. Instead, in verse 6, it says here, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, You know, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And so as Philip analyzes the problem, he comes up with a financial solution. And it's not a good one. The amount that he has quoted here is six to eight months wages. And that would just give just a, a couple of morsels for each person that is out there. So here presented with a problem, some of the disciples just ignore it. Philip tries to analyze it financially. And then verse 9 tells us, rather verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now if Andrew would have stopped at that moment, what he said would have been very helpful, but he doesn't, does he? He says after that, but what are they for so many? We need to talk briefly about what the bread would have been. It was barley loaves. It would have been very, very small, the equivalent of crackers. And being that they were made from barley, it was attainable to the poorest of people at this stage in, in development. And these fish would have been small, little sardines. So there's two of these sardines and a, five of these crackers that are available. And so Andrew asked very honestly and candidly, but what are they for so many? And then Jesus responds in verse 10. Have the people sit down. I like how Matthew put it. Jesus said, bring the people to me. So far, the problem has been presented, and some have just tried to get rid of the problem. Others have tried to analyze it and throw money at it. Others have tried to bring people into the equation. But Jesus said, why don't you just let me handle it? Have the people sit down. And according to Mark 6, they sat down in groups of 50 and 100. Verse 10 says, now there was much grass in the place. This indicates that it was in the spring so that the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11 reads, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, 
he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, this may be so familiar to you, and you've heard this now over a hundred times, that you might just lose how ridiculous this may have looked. There is Jesus surrounded by some fifteen to 20,000 people, and he is grabbing a few sardines and a few crackers, and he is offering thanks to God for providing for everybody. Now, can you imagine the blank stares on the disciples' face? Like, what in the world is he doing? And perhaps some are even thinking to themselves, I'm not sure this is a good idea following along with this guy. And then something miraculous happens. This says that the that Jesus distributed him. But when you compare that with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that he distributed to the disciples and the disciples distributed to the 15 to 18, 20,000 different people that were sitting there. And it also says there at verse 11 at the end, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill. In other words, everyone was able to eat what they wanted that day. I don't know if you've been brought up in a big family or not. I'm beginning to see some of this in my own family. There are times when we maybe we go over to someone's house to eat, and they're not, well, they're not ready for us. (laughs) Because this family can eat, right? And so there may come times where myself or my wife will have to say, hey, guys, Settle it down a little bit. Let make sure there's enough food for everyone here. And even if we go away hungry, that's okay, because we'll stop and grab something on our way back, or at least when we get home, okay? But let's not eat everything up. But that is not what's taken place here. Everyone there has been filled. They've been able to eat as much as they wanted. It says there also in verse 12 that he told his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost or nothing would be wasted. How many of you found that to be true, that God or Jesus doesn't waste anything in our lives? Verse 13, So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. This would have been the equivalent to a first century lunchbox with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And if you've been tracking with us through the gospel of John, we will celebrate this moment because they had now discovered he, because of this sign, is the foretold of prophet, not a prophet, but look at it again, the prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and following, Moses foretold of the prophet. It says there, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is the hymn you shall listen. Let's skip down to verse 18. He says, I will rise him up, rise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So their eyes are opened. This is Jesus. This Jesus is the prophet. But something interesting happens then. 
verse 15 says. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus would not entrust himself into people who were only interested in using him to suit their own needs. Now it's believed here that they had an understanding of this prophet that is different than why Jesus came. The Jews, the Israelites, for, for most of their lives, knew oppression. I mean, just think of the world powers that controlled and ruled them, whether it was the Egyptians or, at the time of this writing, the Romans. And they were looking for a deliverer that would come in and through military force would overturn the Romans and allow them to experience the freedoms that they wanted. But this was not why Jesus came. And he said, I'm just not interested in becoming your king at this time under those circumstances. It says here that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now Mark 6 verse 46 tells us that he withdrew to the mountain to pray. Now as we move into verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. In fact, Mark 6 verse 44 tells us that Jesus instructed his disciples to get into the boat. And that's what they did in verse 17. They got into a boat and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Why? Because he was still about his father's business praying. Now, there are instances in the Bible, and we can think of Jonah in particular, where because of a man's disobedience, God sent a storm. But in this passage, it's because of men's obedience that God sends a storm. And we see it here in verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. According to Matthew 14, verse 24, waves were beating the boat. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. This sea is around 13 miles long and about eight miles wide. And they had been rowing across it. According to the calculations that I did this week, they probably would have been in the boat about nine hours, and that had produced about three or four miles. Uh, Friends, that is not very productive. The sea at this time was below sea level, and as a result, it was known for having these winds Contrarian winds that would blow up and blow in your face, making it almost impossible to row a boat into it. I'm not sure if any of you have had this experience. It being on a a massive lake in a small little boat or a vessel, only to have the wind creep up and suddenly blow in your face. Several years ago, I was with family, and we were up in the Sylvania wilderness area, up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, And we were on a camping trip where we were using canoes. And because I had fished on this lake before, I decided to get up real early one morning, and it was just myself. And I got in the canoe, and I went all the way down to the far end of the lake. There was a little island there. I had fished there before, and it had been very fruitful. And I wanted to go down there at the best time of the day. And God blessed. I mean, it was just fish everywhere. 
and, and I lost track of time. It was a beautiful morning. And then it occurred to me, you know what? I need to get back. And, and everyone's still back at the campsite. And as I looked back across this long lake, the wind had begun to blow out. And now there was big waves. And so I decided in this canoe, when you sit in the canoe and it's by yourself and you're sitting in the back, the tip of the front of that canoe goes up. And so I, I rolled or paddled as best I could along the shoreline, as far along as I could to try to get out of the wind. But there came a time when I inevitably had to cross the lake to get to where the campsite was. And it was there where I was caught up in that wind. And the moment my front of my boat would get into that wind, it would quickly turn me 180 degrees in the opposite direction. It was really frustrating and exhausting. And finally, by the grace of God, finally got the boat where it needed to go. So I can experience a little empathy here for these disciples. While they were struggling, where they were depleting all of their energy and resources and getting virtually nowhere, here's Jesus walking across the water to them. It's no wonder that according to one of the the, the gospel writers, when they looked up, they said, it is a ghost. It could be that the wind and the waves had, had distorted their view so much they could not see clearly that it was Jesus. Now in another account in Matthew, we read about Peter. At this moment, Peter gets out of the water and actually walks on the water momentarily as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, but then sinks into the water. Verse 20 there in John 6, it says, He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21 says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And according to Matthew 14, as soon as he got into the boat, the winds died down. Listen to what it says here to close out verse 21. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So often we can read this passage and say the point of this is is Jesus navigating us through the storms of life. But that is not the point at all of this passage. The point of this passage is getting Jesus in the boat. Because As soon as he was in the boat, they got, according to the last part there of verse 21, they got exactly where they were supposed to go. And then they have a little worship service, according to Matthew 14, verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now that's a quick survey of these 21 verses. Now, let's just go back up and just consider a few of these themes, shall we? Number one, Jesus provides test for the one he loves. As we look back at this passage in John 6, we see that Jesus provided a test for his disciples. Has anyone here considered this? That what Jesus was asking of his disciples was absolutely impossible for them to fulfill. Feed these fifteen to 18,000 people, disciples. I'm putting this on you. And Jesus, at times, will ask us to do things that are, we are incapable of doing. So we see here that we may attempt to fulfill these tests on our own strength, but we will always fail. 
we are to bring these tests to Jesus. And when we ask Him to get in the boat, we will see Him glorified. In Matthew 5, verse 48, here's a test for you. Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Has anyone passed this test? Is there anyone here today that says, I got that one? Ultimately, none of us can say that we are righteous before him. None of us have perfectly obeyed the commandments. In fact, the commandments have only revealed the opposite of that, how sinful we are. We have failed this test. And as a result, Christ was sent on our behalf to take on what we deserve, our punishment, and that by faith and repentance we might have a relationship with Him. So Jesus provides tests for the one He loves. Tests provide opportunities to grow in the Lord. Now these tests come in all sorts of size and shapes, don't they? The first part of John 6 seems like just a, a garden variety test. It's around food at a picnic. Here, provide food for these people. But the second test that we see in the latter part of this chapter is like life-threatening tests. I'm not sure I'm going to make it out of this boat. But there is something to be said about observing whatever challenge is before you today as a test. And how are you responding to the one that God has brought before you this week? Let me read to you a few verses that are probably familiar to you. James 1 Verses 2, 3, and 4 say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you make trials or tests of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or 1 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various tests or trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I just bring this before you again. What test has God ordained for you this last week, this last month? And when we see these as tests, I don't know about you, but I can get excited about it. Like, you know what? God's up to something here. And he is wanting to produce character in me. He's wanting to test faith in me. He's wanting to show off the gospel power in my life. And so he has permitted this so that I can trust in him. But when we don't see it as a God-ordained test, we can be given over to despair, anger, frustration, confusion, or even being just overwhelmed. May I urge you to say, Jesus, I can't, I can't do this one. Will you get into the boat? Will you take my life? Will you rule it? Will you direct it? First thing we see here is Jesus provides tests for the one he loves. Secondly, these are not earth-shattering, I realize, but Jesus uses ordinary people to carry out his mission. When we review this passage again, could I just ask you, and if you were listening, then you might have an answer for this. Uh, Did Philip, did Andrew, did Peter, did they pass this test? 
They didn't, did they? And often we don't pass these tests. But has anyone else found it a little exciting to realize that despite failing this test that was given to Andrew and to Philip, who is it that was handing out the bread and the fish? It was Jesus allowing his disciples to do that. He uses ordinary people. You might find yourself here this morning thinking, how could he possibly use me? Well, if you've been saved, if you come to a realization that you need to be saved, God's desire is to use you, and that's who he uses, and his, his glory is best displayed through ordinary people. Do you remember what it says there in Paul's writing to the church in Corinth? God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I'll show you what else there is that Jesus is patient with his followers. He could have said, you know what? Here I'm presented you with a problem, a test, and here's the route you took. One, let's just, let's just get rid of the problem. Send these people away. That is not my plan at all. Another said, hey, we just need to analyze it and throw money at it. Another said, let's just involve people when all along, all I wanted you to do was to bring that test, bring that problem to me, because there you will find my strength being made perfect in that. Perhaps you're here this morning saying, all right, this is a test. This is a test that God has brought. And man, I've blown it in the past, but I'm encouraged today to hear that God uses people like that. I'll tell you, for me, I'm greatly encouraged to read that. And then another thought here is like the boy, we are to give Jesus our all. I don't think anyone would argue that this young lad was in the prime of his life. What could Jesus possibly do with this little boy? Perhaps You're not even close to the prime of your life. Maybe it's in the future. Maybe it's in the distant past. And you don't have the strength. You don't have the mobility. Your your thoughts and your words are not as orchestrated as they once were. And you're asking yourself, well, what in the world could God do with me? And a couple of fish and a couple of bread. Oh, I hope you gain some encouragement today because he can do quite a lot. And I believe that's what he is asking of you today, is to say, give him your all today, whatever that is. You acquainted with a man named William Wilberforce? He was one that was born in the 1750s, died in the 1830s. He was born to a very privileged family in Hall, England. His dad was wealthy, made his fortune in sugar refining. He was the mayor of Hall, a couple of different terms. When William Wilberforce was nine years old, his father died. In God's providence, his mom struggled coping with that. And so young Willie was sent to an aunt uncle's house who happened to be evangelical Christians. And it was there where for three years they heard of the gospel. Not only that, but they would have some of these prominent Christian men like George Whitfield and John Newton come and visit them. It was here where William Wilberforce heard the gospel and saw it lived out for him. 
Now, when his mom found out that he was around some crazy Christians, she quickly pulled him out of that living situation to another one where he could be more immersed by the world. And you know what happened? That's exactly what happened. And he became one that was like everyone else in in alcohol and playing cards and gambling. But he had some amazing people skills. And he was in some circles of some real leaders. And at age 21, he actually was elected to parliament. And in God's strange set of circumstances, in the early years of his adult life, he was vacationing in Europe. And he was riding in a carriage and he was trying to select who would he ride with because this was a long ride and you didn't want to ride with someone that you didn't want to visit with. There was someone very, very intelligent in a prominent place, a professor there at Cambridge University uh, whose, uh, whose name was Mr. Milner. And Mr. Isaac Milner, and they rode along the European countryside and Mr. Milner was a Christian. When they began to talk with one another, he would challenge Wilberforce's views. And shortly after that, Wilberforce became a child of God. He left that trip, and now he's thinking, what in the world do I do with my faith? Here I'm here in something that is so worldly like the politics of my day. And so he visits John Newton, who you know is famous for writing the song Amazing Grace. And he says to him, What am I supposed to do with this faith that I now have in Jesus? And John Newton says, you know what? We need that salt. We need that light in politics. I think you should take that right into politics. And one day, as Wilberforce was reading his Bible and praying, he wrote in a journal from October 28, 1787, these 20 words. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. What he meant by that was morality. And so God just had a small little task for him. Overturn slavery and then overturn the the decaying morality of his culture. You talk about something impossible. What could one man do. But Wilberforce spent a life of just reading the Bible, praying, surrounding himself with others that would pray, connecting with people. And God took this lad and he changed the, the culture, the world around him. Would God not do that again? So whatever it is, bring yourself, bring all of yourself to him. And then finally, Jesus' works were for his worship, not for our fulfillment. Jesus did not entrust himself to people who are merely trying to use him. The purpose of these tests were to lead us to worship him. I read again Matthew 14, verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. As we think through this message and how to apply it, here's a few thoughts for you. One, identify your test. What has God strategically placed in your life currently, right now, for you to, perhaps that is something that you feel overwhelmed in? 
Perhaps it feels like that is impossible for you to fulfill. I'm just here to tell you that that's not a bad place to be. That's precisely where the disciples found themselves in these two stories. Identify your test. Secondly, commit this test to Jesus. Don't, don't be like the disciples and say, here's what we're going to do. Let's just, let's just rid ourselves of this test or this problem. Or let's just try to analyze it. Let's try to throw money at it. Or let's try to bring our own people into it. Rather, bring it to Jesus and see what Jesus would have you to do with it. In both these stories, he is the only solution. He is the only story to all of our stories. And then finally, commit all of yourself to Jesus. I wonder how many here today would say, God, Jesus, whatever I have left, I give to you. Whatever I have left, I give to you. And what might he do with that yielded life? I'm looking forward to next week, as if the Lord wills, we will unpack the remaining 51 verses of this passage And it's through there, I think, that we're going to really get a sense of what our motives are in following Jesus. So in some ways, we covered the easy part today. So please come back next week, and we'll find out more about what is it. Are we like this crowd that are only using Jesus, or are we ones that really want to follow Jesus for who he is and give him the worship that he deserves? Let's pray. Father, it's been very refreshing to me this week in studying this passage. And while these might seem like ordinary stories in some ways, that we're so familiar with them, we've heard them for in Sunday school as children, we've seen them now as adults, and it could be we read them with glazed overlooks. But I pray that there would be a refreshment that takes place as Philip was tested in this room, all over this room, online, and viewing this or hearing the audio, there are people that are experiencing tests right now. And I pray that they would see it as that and they would see it as an opportunity. In the baptistry this morning, there was one that experienced a test. That led him to faith in Christ. That led him to turn his life over and say, whatever you want of my life, you could have it. So I pray in this room today, that if that's you, whatever hardship, whatever challenge is before you, God would give you the faith just to do that right now. Turn from your sins. Place your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And then around the room, for those that are already are children of God, they'll identify that test. And they'll commit that test to whatever good you want to produce in their life. And then we'll just take some time right now and say, God, whatever you want, of the remaining years of my life, whatever you want of the resources, uh, large or small, that I have, I am entrusting them to you right now, like this boy did. And you fed 15,000, 18,000 people with that. I don't know what you will do with who I am, but I'm just entrusting myself to you, the resources you've given me today. I want to give you a moment to do that in your own words. Father, we thank you for meeting with us today in your word, for drawing us. And we pray that you would just give us the grace now to apply what we have heard 
and using our lives for your good as we leave here in a few moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.